Thank you for listening to the Active Lexington podcast. Today's episode is one that I've had in the vault for a little while. So some references may be a little out of date, but the information is exceptionally useful. The interview was with Troy Hearn, who is a longtime friend of mine, and he is currently the bicycle and pedestrian program coordinator for the Kentucky Transportation Cabinet. In this podcast, we talk a lot about um, just Troy's involvement and growing up in the biking world um, in both industry and as a cyclist himself. We do an awful lot of discussion around mountain biking in Kentucky, which was fascinating with me because I got to learn a lot about the trail systems and how they came about. And then we spend quite a bit of time also talking about how you can be involved and just what his day-to-day job is to make Kentucky a better place for people to ride their bikes and be pedestrians out on the roads. So he gives information um, on how to become involved. So sit back. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed this episode of the Active Lexington podcast. Nikki and I first met you, you were, you know, working at the bike shop, um, and then you came to Frankfurt and did the bike shop here. Uh, when was the transition from the bike shop over to working for the county, or working for the state doing this role? Uh, when I had my bike shop here in Frankfurt, uh, even before then, uh, when I worked at Pedal the Planet, uh, I was asked to be on a statewide bicycle commission. It's called the Kentucky Bicycle and Bikeways Commission uh, that was started in uh, 2007 Uh, and I was uh, appointed by the governor's office uh, to be on that and it is uh, seven folks from around the state different parts of the state that advise the Secretary of Transportation on issues with bicycle travel uh, safety promotion education awareness and I was on that for two years. Uh, when I was on that commission, I found out that there was a state bicycle and pedestrian coordinator uh, that worked with the transportation cabinet. At that time, it was uh, Paula Na. Uh, she uh, has since passed away. She had cancer. Uh, the uh, the share the road license plate uh, was really her uh, thing. Uh, her and uh, Dr. Marty Smith, the eye doctor. Oh, yeah. His wife, Allison, uh, wanted uh, the share of the road license plate. Uh, they had been to Florida, and uh, she had inquired about it. And so uh, Allison Smith worked with Paul and I um, to get the share of the road license plate. Uh, we were the fifth state in the country to get a share of the road license plate. It's uh, definitely, I mean, as you drive around town, almost a, not only a badge of honor, but it's fun to see just who else has that plate as you're driving around. That's the most popular uh, numbers of, you know, plates sold, uh, popular specialty plate that we have in Kentucky. Um, but the uh, the really cool thing about that share the road plate, uh, kind of get off sideways there, uh, $10 from every share the road plate goes towards this Paul and I Memorial Education Grant. And that money is given out each year about seventy five to $90,000 is given out to organizations like Brooks Boak and the 
the uh, folk bike recycler here in Frankfurt, uh, Wildcat Wheels and the Transy uh, bike uh, program uh, have all been funded through uh, the Shield of the Red License Plate. Uh, but through my work with the uh, KBBC, the Bike Commission, uh, I learned of the bike ped coordinator's job and uh, knew about it, but you know that's about all it was. And then when I uh, left Pedal the Planet and opened my shop in Frankfurt, uh, every year I would have multiple people come in and they would say, you would be perfect for this job. And they would mention uh, the bicycle pedestrian coordinator's job. And I uh, never inquired about it uh, for many, many years. And about the fourth year that the bike shop was open, um, I inquired about it just to see what, and what did it pay in the hours, what you needed to do to be able to get that job. And it uh, became a little appealing to me because at that time I was working 60, 70 hours a week uh, and I was breaking even every year. Such uh, is the life of a bike shop owner. The bike, uh, <laughs> yeah, life of a, a small business owner, especially a bike shop owner. Yeah. Um, and of course, I love the bike industry and I loved what I did. And the majority of the people that came in were awesome. Um, but uh, about four years into owning the shop here, I looked into it. And one of the folks I just asked about it uh, was very excited that I was asking about it. And uh, so when the position became open, uh, they asked me to apply for it. And I did. And I applied for a couple other different jobs, but I ended up getting this job uh, long story short let's kind of go back because i mean that's where you're at today right but i've known you well bikes have been the reason why i knew who you are and you know um, when we were competing we used your shop as kind of our bike source uh has bikes has cycling been a sport that you've been involved with your whole life or has riding a bike been something you've done since a kid or like when, how did you get into bikes in the first place? Uh, I got my first bike when I was about four. I remember the exact Christmas that I got that bike. I remember that exact bike. Uh, it was a Huffy. Uh, it was the uh, Schwinn Stingray uh, copy. Uh, <laughs> and and, uh, and I, I love that bike. Uh, and I've always been an avid bike rider. Uh, when I was in uh, probably sixth, seventh, eighth grade, I raced uh, BMX bikes. I wasn't very good at it, but I did it and loved it. Where did you live growing up? Uh, I'm from Frankfurt. Originally okay. grew up in Frankfurt. And did they have a BMX track here? Uh, no, we would go to uh, either Kearney Hills or we would go to uh, Masterson Station uh, in Lexington uh, or we'd go to Louisville. Uh, the E.P. Tom Sawyer Park has always been really, really big, uh, even you know, 35, 40 years ago. Um, and I had a BMX and I had a, a Mongoose 24 five-speed BMX. It was a uh, basically a precursor uh, to a mountain bike. Um, and then when I was in my late teens, uh, somewhere around 1986, uh, I got my first mountain bike. Uh, it was a Huffy Snake River. Uh, and because it was a Huffy and I rode it like it was indestructible, I went through five of them in a year. <laughs> and uh, the fella at the store in Lexington said, you need to go to a bike shop and get a real bike. And uh, I got a giant ATX 760. Uh, was my first real bike, and I remember my dad freaking out because it was $450 uh, <laughs> back in uh, 1986. And then uh, within a year, I was did my first race at uh, Butler State Park. I was bike bike Butler, um, and I was hooked. 
uh, from and that how old were you? You're still in your teens at the I time? I was in my uh, late teens, uh, early 20s, um, and then uh, uh, raced uh, mountain bikes uh, at all different levels, uh, but had gotten to a fairly high level. I uh, got my pro license for two years uh, back when uh, all the local pros now were uh, you know, just starting. Uh, I could actually say that I beat Brian Schwarm in a race uh, back in the uh, early to mid-90s. Um, Which is no small feat. No small Not feat. Even then was no small feat, uh, but that was at the peak of my career and uh, the very beginning of his. Um, but I, I've always, you know, had a love for biking, bicycling, uh, being outdoors in general. Uh, I rode bike as well as mountain bike. Uh, mountain biking was my first bike love, uh, you know, being in the woods. And when I mountain bike, I kind of, you have to focus on mountain biking. You really forget about everything uh, versus road riding. You can get out there and you, you think about everything sometimes. Uh, but really any kind of bicycle, uh, I just love it. So take me through the kind of history of mountain biking in Kentucky. So, I mean, just generally, I feel like when I was younger probably when you were at your peak so I was in junior high like mountain biking was a big thing and then it felt like maybe it was just my own interest but over there was a period of time where my mountain biking kind of drifted away but it sure feels like the last three or four years like there's a lot more people mountain biking again and doing a lot a lot of races is that consistent with how mountain bikings went up and down or is it just my perception um I, I think that's uh a good perception it I worked at a, uh, a bike shop uh, when I was at college at uh, UK. It was a Shellers a bike shop downtown. Uh, we were the one of the top Gary Fisher dealers in the country. Uh, it was nothing for us to sell 20 mountain bikes in a day. Holy cow. Uh, those were, you know, when college, the first couple of weeks uh, of college and all the students would come in. And, uh, you know, mountain biking, uh, at least around here, uh, was in its heyday, uh, you know, where you would have two and three day uh, mountain bike festivals. Uh, like at uh, Butler State Park, you'd have three day mountain bike festival. Uh, Western Kentucky, uh, laying between the lakes and uh, up in the uh, Cincinnati area, you would have these two and three day mountain bike festivals and there would be thousands of people there. Uh, I remember going to the West Virginia mountain bike festival as a week long, you know, mountain bike festival. Uh, at uh, Elk, uh, Elk River touring area near Elkins. And uh, there would be 10 to 20,000 people there because of the mountain bike. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the, the mountain bike, you know, stayed at that, that high level for many, many years. And then uh, when uh, Lance Armstrong came on the scene, uh, road riding, you know, kind of started to take over. Yeah. And uh, my, like myself, maybe before Lance uh, came on the scene, but I got a road bike. And I, I started road biking. Um, I think when the mountain bike exploded uh, in the early 90s, uh, also saw a huge growth like in the Bluegrass Cycling Club. Uh, you know, it went from being a group of, you know, maybe 30, 40, 50 people, and you knew all of them. We were all on the same rides. Uh, and then all of a sudden there were hundreds of people that were in the, the bike club. Now you have 30, 40 people at a ride. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Midway ride has over 100 people uh, every week. Really? Uh, and uh, but, but the the mountain bike scene uh, probably in the late 90s early 2000s uh, had definitely waned uh, but then the road biking the road cycling scene just took over 
the Louisville Bike Club, the Bluegrass Cycling Club, and the Ashland Bike Club, you know, all experienced phenomenal growth, and they have still, you know, continue to grow, uh, you know, thousands of members of, of these clubs, and uh, the local bike events like the Horsey 100 and the Red Bud Ride, you know, have well over 2,000, you know, riders show up for those events. Uh, but the, the mountain biking is what started it for me, um, and I think when one part of the cycling spectrum grows, that feeds the other parts, because uh, I saw BMX had a little bit of a growth back when mountain biking grew, uh, and then road biking grew, and then, then road biking kind of took over, um, and then the mountain biking kind of waned, uh, and then about maybe 10, 15 years later, uh, you know, starting about maybe four years ago, at least locally, uh, Kentucky-wise, um, I saw the races start to, you know, have more people attend. Uh, certainly, you see a lot more uh, folks on the trails. Uh, when I rode in the late 80s and 90s, uh, you had to drive an hour plus from Lexington to go to a good mountain bike trail. Uh, now you can drive 20 or 30 minutes, and you have your pick of three or four different mountain bike trails. Yeah, I was going to ask that. So, you know, running is... I consider myself a runner before anything else, but um, even we are impressed in, uh, it's pretty in inspirational to see like in Lexington Veterans Park, right? So the mountain bike culture there, who I, I don't actually, you probably know, I don't know, but the people that um, maintain the trails there and went and added onto the trails did a really great job um, there in, at Veterans Park. Uh, who, who does take care of that, do you know? Well, the, uh, the main responsible party uh, group is the Kentucky Mountain Bike Association. Uh, I've also been involved with that organization for well over 20 years. Uh, it is an offshoot of the International Mountain Bike Association, or IMBA. Um, the uh, former president of the International Mountain Bike Association, a guy named Stuart Olferts, is uh, from Louisville. Uh, that was back in the uh, early 90s. Um, and then when he stepped down from the IMBA president, he started Kimba, uh, which is a subchapter or an affiliate of IMBA. Um, and they had seen the need for trail building, trail maintenance, uh, reconstruction, better standards, better best practices. And they were more or less focused out of Louisville for many years because Louisville had trails there. They had Otter Creek, they had uh, Waverly Park and Iroquois Park. And then as it gained a lot of momentum in the 90s, you know, Kimba, members of Kimba that lived in other parts of the state started building trails in their own areas, uh, like the, uh, uh, the land between the lakes trails, the Golden Pond Loop. Uh, Where's Golden Pond? Uh, that's near uh, Hopkinsville, uh, in that area, far western Kentucky. Uh, and then even uh, Capital View Park here in Frankfurt, uh, which is now almost 25 years old. Uh, oh, is it really? uh, We uh, started those trails, uh, and when I say we, uh, members of Kimba and just mountain bikers, uh, basically saw wooded areas near where they lived that weren't being used for anything. And 25 years ago, we went in and we just built trails. Uh, we didn't ask permission, uh, but they were awesome trails, uh, and we did that a lot. Uh, the good news is a lot of those trails are still around, uh, and the good news is a lot of those trails are grandfathered into, you know, the planning uh, makeup in those towns and those uh, counties. Um, 
but Kimba has taken it to a whole nother level in the last probably five to 10 years and has developed uh, documented uh, best practices and standards. And uh, we give presentations every week almost somewhere in the state uh, and let people know if you want trails developed in your city or county, here's how to do it and Kimba can help. Yeah, I mean, it is one thing about mountain biking I mean, when you think of road cycling, the roads are there and you can go, you don't have to maintain them as a participant. But in mountain biking, you kind of have to put in some work on the trails if uh, you want to participate because the trails don't just make themselves. And we, uh, the, the folks, the few folks that do maintain all the local trails, uh, we call ourselves the trail gnomes. Uh, we say there are no trail fairies, uh, <laughs> but there are trail gnomes. Uh, we do a better job of promoting ourselves uh, and uh, marketing ourselves. Uh, we have several uh, social media sites that we will put pictures of uh, various folks out there weed eating or uh, cutting down trees or chopping stuff up. Uh, what the, are some of those social media sites? Can uh, we use uh, Facebook a lot. Oh, okay. um, that's Just Kimba? Uh, it's, it's a Kimba. Uh, there are uh, different chapters of Kimba now. There's the Bluegrass chapter. Uh, which is uh, more or less the Lexington, you know, Frankfurt, Central Kentucky area. Uh, you have the Louisville Kimba group. Uh, there's uh, Southwest is the far southwest part of the state. There's the Lincoln uh, Trail area, uh, which goes down towards uh, E-Town and uh, Radcliffe, uh, kind of southwest of Louisville. Um, and then uh, Bluegrass now pretty much covers, you know, Frankfurt and everything east. Uh, so we work with the trail group in uh, Moorhead up near Cave Run, uh, the folks uh, around Laurel Lake and the shelter we trace down through there. Uh, we're working with folks in Ashland at Greenbow State Park. And are all these trails that are built, so like Capital View, um, are they all nowadays built on public land? Or like who, who's the owner of the, the land that these trails typically get built on? It varies. Uh, there's no one set owner group now. Uh, uh, a lot of them are in state parks or city parks. Uh, some of them, are, the oldest trail systems are in the National Park Service. Uh, some of them, like a Life Adventure Center and uh, for sales, is on private property. Uh, we have developed standards and ways to work with anybody, any user group, any owner of any property uh, to develop the trails. Uh, Kentucky is lucky that we have a, uh, uh, a held harmless law for folks that open up their land for public recreational use. As long as they don't charge money for folks to use the land, uh, then they're not liable if someone gets hurt on it. Uh, and then Kimba works with them to help develop the trail and develop a maintenance plan for it. Um, the the li Life Center, what's the place over in Versailles? Life Adventure Center. Yeah. Is that open to the public? It is. It is. Uh, I haven't been over there. Uh, that trail is the newest trail in the bluegrass area. Uh, it's about three years old. Uh, it's almost six miles of trail now. Uh, up until about two months ago, it was probably 95% uh, constructed and maintained by one crazy mountain biker, a guy named Roger Wilson that lives in Versailles. Uh, he retired, uh, and he needed something to do to keep himself busy. Uh, so it worked out great that the Life Adventure Center kind of opened up right when all that happened. Um, now the trails there are just for mountain biking. Uh, the way the trails are constructed and some other things going on there, 
the mountain bikers are the only ones that can use that trail. Uh, but the same entity that owns Life Adventure Center uh, also owns the Buckley Wildlife Refuge, uh, which is also in Woodford County. And they have a, another trail system there that you can go there for like walking and running. So the, I think the, in Lexington, the people that I know that mountain bike quite a bit, there seems to be four places that they go to kind of just for a weekday ride. It's Capitol View if they have a little bit of time to get over here. Um, Versailles, the trail you just talked about, and then Veterans, um, and then Skullbusters. I don't know much about Skullbusters. What, uh, that, that? That's in uh, Scott County. Uh, the reason it's called Skullbuster is not because it's Which like, is intimidating. Well, it's <laughs> not an extreme, like you're going to bust your skull there. The little community where the trail system is located is called Skullbuster. Oh, okay. Uh, the story I was told that the, the community flooded uh, and a lot of the little buildings like the churches and the public buildings, they couldn't afford to reconstruct the buildings, so they just raised all the floors where the floors were ruined, and they didn't... Uh, redesign the door jams so now when you walk through a lot of the doorways and those old buildings you would bust your skull so they started <laughs> calling it the skull buster community and so that's how the name uh stuck uh there was a our, this that is a county owned land uh, there were already equestrian trails uh, on that property and uh, two of the members of kimba uh, live uh, within five miles of that property and they started scouting out the property when they were out on their bikes and they would see you know horses there and uh because we're a, a lot more legitimate organization now they approached the county judge and some other folks in that area and asked if we could build some trails there and they they said yes uh, so that trail system is probably about eight or nine years old now uh, and it's one of our most successful examples of how an equestrian trail system and a mountain bike trail system can coexist in the same you know probably four or five hundred acres uh, the trails aren't on the same ribbon of trail but they do cross several places and with the uh, proper placement of signage uh, and communication with the two main equestrian groups that developed that trail system uh, and then just being friendly with folks out there uh, we use that as our one of our models now for the state yeah, that's one of the things that I think of, like, when you're on the road, obviously, and we'll probably talk about this, but you have to talk about shared use of <laughs> of space, right? right? But when you're out on trails, you know, I trail run, and I do a little mountain biking, or have historically done a little mountain biking, but you see, um, over in Cave Run, you'll see horses on trails and stuff, too, and so is there just a lot of Education. I mean, how how do you go about forming those relationships to have shared use trails and stuff like that? The model that we try to use now is to have two separate trails in the same area. So you'll have one devoted to equestrian use. You'll have one devoted to a mountain bike, hike, run use. Uh, sometimes you might have a separate trail for hikers and runners. Um, but uh, some of the older trail systems still do allow mixed use. Uh, the way you design the trail, the maintenance needed to the trail, how you educate your users is vastly different from you know, somebody that rides a horse to somebody that runs and somebody that rides a bike. Uh, so it's, it's very challenging. Uh, the Dawkins line is a new, fairly new trail. It's about three years old. 
Uh, it's a uh, old railroad uh, corridor that was converted to a trail. What's the name of it? The Dawkins Line, uh, D-A-W-K-I-N-S. It's uh, down near uh, Prestonsburg, Salyersville, Paintsville area. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's about 38 miles long now, and it's growing. Uh, probably be about uh, 48 miles when it's all done. Nice. Uh, and that's uh, equestrian, bike, hike, you know, runner. Um, and that, of course, that's a crushed aggregate. It's a little bit better surface for that mixed use. Uh, but, you know, you have to uh, put the proper signage up. Uh, you have to know uh, what kind of treatments might be needed in each of the areas. Uh, when you have horses, you have a big, long trail system, you need big water troughs, troughs out for them. Uh, you need some uh, uh, tie-up hitching post for them. Right. Uh, you might need a big grass area for the horses to stop and eat. Uh, and then... Uh, but the, uh, overall, uh, we, the mountain bike organization reaches out to the uh, Kentucky Backcountry Horsemen, uh, the uh, national equestrian group that uh, is here in, in, uh, in our state. Just be nice to them. Uh, the good horseback riders know that horses have a huge impact on the trail system when it's soft or wet or muddy or in the winter. The good mountain bikers know that the trail system is impacted adversely when folks use it when it's soft or wet or so on. So the, all of the user groups, I think, in the last 10 years have done a much, much better job of policing themselves. When you were, so you've been riding bikes. I mean, bikes have been a part of your whole life. You just talked about that, getting your first bike when you're four years old and been involved with, you know, the bike shops throughout college, you know, working in them. Was there, do you ever remember, like, someone that was inspirational to you at this uh, that motivated you to get on the trails or anything? Like, or is it just your innate desire to get outside and go do something? Um, the, the one single person that was probably my biggest mentor was a fellow named Joe Moore. Uh, he... Uh, we, we called him the bike guru or sensei uh, back in the early 90s. Uh, he was the best mountain biker that I ever personally knew. Uh, he had the ability to be a professional mountain biker uh, back in the 90s. Uh, he just didn't want to train that way. Uh, he did race pro uh, for many, many years. Uh, he was also one of the first uh, trials riders. You know, the guys that jump on and off big giant boulders and picnic tables and cars. You know, anything that you could do on a bicycle or anything you didn't think anybody could do on a bicycle, this guy could. Uh, he took me under his wing. Uh, was the, he here in Frankfurt? Uh, it was in Lexington. Oh, okay. Um, he uh, took me under his wings and uh, taught me how to uh, be a bike mechanic. Uh, he was also a really good mechanic, anything, uh, motorcycles, cars, and he would show me you know, what to do and how to do it. And he was extremely patient. Um, he took me to uh, Berea, Kentucky, uh, back in like 1987. Uh, and there were trails, there still are trails there, uh, but they're closed to mountain bikes, but uh, phenomenal trail system. Uh, and then we you know, took some trips to North Carolina and then we took some trips to Northern Georgia. And, uh, you know, this was back in the days when there were no suspension forks there were no full suspension bikes these were fully rigid steel you know mountain bikes and by today's technology standards people would scratch their head and 
wonder how in the world we did what we did, you know, with those kind of bikes. The mountain bike didn't come around until the mid to late 80s, right? Or was it around before then? You know, the, the mountain bike that we know today, uh, around the mid 80s, is when it came out. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think it came out of California, you know, northern central California. And they took old beach cruisers and took uh, motorcycle parts on them uh, so they could ride, you know, up and down, you know, basically the big fire roads uh, out in northern California. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's changed a whole lot uh, since I started riding. Yeah, the technology, like you said. And it keeps improving. It does. It, uh, the bike I have now is probably five years old. And when people see it, uh, they some people, like the, the racers, the guys that have the newest of new equipment now, look at it and they're like oh cool that's a cool old bike you know and uh, but people in my neighborhood that see it still think it's a super high-end you know bike right so personally do you get out on the mountain bike more or the road bike more or kind of you split it up equally still uh it's split uh even living in frankfurt and only live about five miles from capitol view park uh, it's still just super easy to jump on my road bike and Fortunately, I live in the county, uh, so within like two miles, I'm out on a quiet, you know, county road, uh, and I still love road riding. Uh, uh, you know, I've always been a salesman, uh, so I love the social aspect of road riding. Uh, we have a big group here in Frankfurt that meets on Mondays, uh, and I lead one of the rides there, and then I'm one of the ride leaders for the group ride in, uh, in uh, Midway on Wednesdays, and then I did uh, the Horsey 100. Uh, this year I've done a couple other uh, event rides uh, and I and I still love that you know getting out with you know 2,000 of your best friends and go out and ride 100 miles. One of the things that is motivating me to do some of these interviews is to you know talk to people that and just be able to share like what Kentucky has to offer. In your role today like you deal with the whole state of Kentucky but um the terrain is like eastern kentucky western kentucky like central kentucky there's different needs or different opportunities in all of those areas how do um what's the road cycling like you know in the different areas like what's i haven't been out and riding on the roads out in eastern kentucky are there people that ride on the road out there or is it just trail riding or there's road riding all over the state uh, Kentucky, we're very fortunate that we have a very diverse uh, geography. If you go to southeast Kentucky, you actually get real mountains. You know, there's some uh, uh, almost 5,000 foot elevation uh, in far southeast Kentucky. Uh, and the road riding out there is no joke. I mean, if you're used to, you know, what we call hills around here, right. uh, you go out there, you'll get a rude awakening. Uh, you know, northern Kentucky is fairly hilly. Uh, you know, northeast Kentucky's got some pretty good hills. Uh, central Kentucky, uh, around Lexington, Frankfort, Woodford County, uh, I call them rollers. We have a lot of rolling terrain. Uh, I think the geographic terms, the Palisades. Uh, then you start to go to western Kentucky, it's really, really flat. Uh, I'm fortunate with my job that I, I'm able to travel to all these different parts of the state. And uh, my wife hates it when I tell her that part of my job is I have to ride my bike. <laughs> around these areas because I have to assess uh, the bike ability uh, and then a lot of times I'll walk around the downtown area and uh, we do uh, walking and biking assessments 
of the downtown area and then the, the uh, county areas. Uh, the, the pavement quality in Kentucky is some of the best in the country. Uh, I've traveled all over the United States and because now I'm working with the transportation cabinet, you know, one of the things that I notice are, you know, the pavement quality and yeah. the placement of signs along the road and uh, how much a sign garbage there is out there and, uh, you know, is the sign in the right spot and uh, does the signal at the intersection, you know, work properly. And, uh, you know, whether you believe it or not, we're, we're spoiled in our state because we do have such nice, you know, quality of pavement. Uh, the drivers overall are very respectful here. Uh, the cycling community as a whole has really taken it upon themselves in the last probably five years to bring themselves up to another level. Uh, the bike clubs uh, provide training for the ride leaders. Uh, they're always, you know, emphasizing wear a helmet, follow the rules of the road. Uh, these big groups that 20 years ago might not have stopped at a uh, red light in the intersection. They just go on through. Uh, nowadays, everybody stops. And at least they, you know, look around and make sure it's, you know, safe. Yeah, so uh, you mentioned the Bluegrass Cycling Club, which, you know, is out of Lexington. It, it's an enormous group now. Like you said, it used to not be. Do similar clubs, I'm, I'm assuming Louisville has one, but do similar clubs exist in other parts of the state too? Uh, absolutely. The uh, Ashland Bike Club uh, is really big. I, th I think there are probably five, six, seven hundred members now. Oh, wow. Uh, because of where they're located in the state, uh, a lot of their members are from uh, Ohio and West Virginia and Virginia because uh, they're right there where uh, four different states, you know, are basically in about a 70-mile uh, area. Uh, they cross over and ride in Ohio and they ride in Virginia and West Virginia. The uh, the the road clubs in and around uh, Elizabethtown, uh, Paducah, uh, I don't remember the names of all of them, but all of the road clubs, uh, more road-specific clubs, uh, have grown in numbers, uh, especially in the last five years. So um, before we um, started, you know, this conversation, we were talking a little bit about uh, just all the share the road signs. And one of the things that um, I've seen uh, I've been in Kentucky a little over a decade now, and it's just more and more signs out on out on the road. Who who's responsible for getting those signs out there? And then also, I'd be interested, like, how did how is it determined on what roadways get shared the road signs and where the placement of those things are? Uh, one of the things I do with my job is let citizens know and communities know that they are empowered to have things added, to change things, to improve things in the community. And one of those things is placement of share the road signs. Uh, we now have a uh, process and a methodology of uh, why, when, and where we would put a share the road sign up. So for instance, uh, the, uh, the Horsey 100 bike event, uh, it's out of Georgetown, out of uh, Scott County. Uh, we know that thousands of people use these certain roads for that event, um, and a lot of those same roads are used every week during uh, rides that the Bluegrass Cycling Club has. So we have data now, and we can show that, you know, on this particular road, uh, maybe up to 500 people a week ride on this road, ride bicycles on this road. So now that we have ways of capturing that data 
much like we do for roads or, or for our cars. Uh, we know how many cars drive on that car day. We, we put equipment out on the road and it counts, you know, the cars and how many trucks and how fast they're going, how much they weigh. So we, we now are capturing all that data for bicyclists and for pedestrians in a lot of the urban areas. And so we can say, you know, even if a road only has 300 cars a day on it, and you say, well, that's a really low-volume road, there's, you know, the old methodology was, well, there's no need to put a warning sign on that road. Well, what if it's a, a road that only has four or 500 cars a day, but over half of them are visitors that are checking out all the uh, distilleries or the other you know, tourist attractions we have here. And those people aren't from here. They don't know that there's you know, bike riders out there. Uh, so there's, there's certain things that we use on our checklist now that we're able to you know, capture all that data uh, to say when, where, why, and how we would put these signs up. Uh, really in the last three years, uh, my office has developed that methodology, that process, uh, a set form uh, that every uh, highway district fills out, uh, or a citizen can contact either my office or the highway uh, district office, and they can say, uh, you know, my name is so-and-so, and I live on this road, and I see people riding on it every day. Uh, we have uh, other tools we can use, like Strava. We can go to a Strava a global heat map, and uh, just look at a quick snapshot of the roadway, and right away you can see that uh, Almost every county in our state, you know, somebody's riding a bike there. Right. And we, we can see that now. Yeah, that's an interesting point that you made about the potentially low traffic but visitors. Because one of the great things about some of the roads around here is riding around the horse farms and the distilleries, like you said. And you don't see many cars, but it is true that cars are there are also visitors. So that's an interesting Well, you know, bike riders choose the roads they ride and they choose the time of day and the day of the week they ride to just happen to be out there when the traffic is the lowest. Uh, whether the bike riders do it on purpose or not, um, but you know the peak times when it's most dangerous for a bicycle rider are you know when people are going to work, when they're coming home from work. Uh, so most of the bike club rides are uh, in the morning after that peak commuter time uh, or they're in the evening after that peak commuter time uh, or on the weekend when the traffic count is the lowest. Right. What are, so one of the things that you mentioned is that as you go around, you also do walkability and bikeability assessments mm -hmm. with the, the towns themselves or communities mm -hmm. themselves. Um, I'm assuming that there has to be a partnership with the communities uh, in those situations. What are, in talking about people being able to contact you guys um, in regards to potential placement of a share of the road sign, what are some other ways that just citizens can get involved um, just at the, you know, to help with uh, local pedestrian issues? The, uh, the two or three biggest partners I have are the uh, county health departments. Uh, we now partner with the state health department through all the county health departments. Uh, they provide uh, funding and they do uh, several workshops a year so a citizen or a community uh, can learn how to be a transportation planner, uh, but specifically uh, biking and walking. Um, we also work with the uh, Kentucky Main Street program. 
Uh, I know the city of Frankfurt is one of the main street communities. Uh, their emphasis is more on walkability uh, because it's usually the downtown areas. Uh, but I think there's about 26 total main street communities in our state, and that's through the, uh, I believe, through Tourism and Arts and Heritage Commission. Uh, and then we also partner with uh, all the local uh, bike clubs. Uh, my former background in the bike industry, I happen to know a lot of those folks, kind of, kind of, you know, call them up and kind of suck them into my world. Uh, <laughs> and then they can also just contact in my office. Uh, if you just Google uh, Bike Walk Kentucky, uh, the KYTC or the Transportation Cabinets website, or the Bike Walk website should be the first thing that popped up. Yeah, so in the mountain bike world, there's, you know, labor <laughs> that needs to be done to maintain the trails. Like you said, it's the Kimba organization kind of group that the gnomes, I think you called yourselves, that do a lot of that. Is um, regarding like uh, being on the road or road cycling, is a lot of the advocacy just awareness raising and things like that? Or do citizens, is there a need for citizens to also put in time working and doing things? There's definitely need to put in the time. Uh, when we're talking about on-road, you know, biking or walking issues, the citizen is not out there building, you know, the, the facility. Right. Uh, but what's needed is someone to do the planning work, put your thoughts and ideas on paper and document what you want. You know, be very specific. We want an extra wide sidewalk. We want a bike path we want a separated bike path and we want it on this road for this reason to connect this neighborhood to that park and that grocery store and that school and document it and then uh, it can be as simple as putting a highlighter line on a map and just with a paragraph or two staple that together now you have a project plan you get a whole stack of those for your whole community now you have a master plan uh, you take that to your city council or your county judge and you say, I've got all these plans. And uh, they'll either think you're crazy uh, <laughs> and, and still want your help uh, or they'll, they'll embrace it. And uh, hopefully those, those plans get better and better. You know, the highlighter on the map and the, the handwritten, you know, paragraph or two uh, eventually has to get to the point where in my world it's called a shovel-ready project. That's where if I said... Uh, Gary, I've got a million dollars. What can we do in your community for a million dollars? And I need it to be shovel ready. Uh, that means you already have to make sure that it's okay to build that sidewalk through all those people's yards. Uh, you've either got to have the easement or the right of way for it. Uh, if there's any uh, in-kind matching, like if it's a federal grant, uh, usually they ask for a 20% match. Uh, you either have to have the money set aside or they want to know that you have uh, equity or labor, you know, something that you can put into the table. Uh, but that's what we do with the, uh, the workshops that we do with the health department as we go over all those steps and processes with communities, with citizens, and let them know, you know, how they could take their idea and their thought and then move it along to where it's a built, you know, structure. And so some of the work that you're doing in those instances is just help educating people on how to keep those projects moving forward or those interests moving forward? Well, how to make it a project. Oh, okay. And then once you make it a project, then certainly you need to keep it going, you know, forward because uh, your elected officials, you know, have thousands of people every week telling them how they need to spend their money. 
so you have to let you know remind everybody that these projects are very important also uh, having uh, accommodating places to walk and to ride uh, to be able to offer a choice of walking or riding your bike to school or work is a very valuable asset to the community besides just you know having fun doing it uh, you're you're active uh, you're outdoors uh, one less car on the road is one less congestion uh, a little bit less air pollution and there are just so many other benefits besides it's just fun to ride my bike to work and in my world um being in kind of the population health or you know the health world it's uh one more step for someone potentially living a healthier life and i don't ring that fitness bell right and i i often really don't get, do a good job of ringing the uh, economic vitality bell you know i just really uh, focus on it's it's another mode of transportation uh, i don't differentiate between you know riding your bike to work and just riding your bike for health you know, to me, they're both transportation. Uh, we don't differentiate when you drive your car, you know, for fun, right. uh, Sunday drive, or when you're driving your car to work, you know, you're still, you know, transporting yourself from point A to point B. And I think in your role, you're probably concerned that people are safe no matter why they're riding it. Right. And that's, that's job number one is to create a safe environment uh, for folks to be able to go walk and to go ride. Right. So I have a few questions that I ask. Um, I call them rapid-fire questions, okay. but feel free to give your response as you want. But in the last six months, what's one time that you've been out, out on your bike that uh, was just a memory that you thought was, you finished and you're like, this is why I like being out on my bike. Can you remember a time? Just last night on my mountain bike. It was a beautiful evening. Uh, the trail was in great shape. Uh, you know, the deer were running around. Uh, I saw three or four other people, and they just had big smiles on their face. Uh, almost every time I'm in the woods on my mountain bike, I feel like that. Uh, and maybe a few then almost every time, but most of the time on the road bike, when I finish, I feel like that too. Yeah. So a second question is, what's one piece of equipment that you wouldn't be able to live without? I should say my helmet <laughs> because it's That's a, a great answer. A diff different helmets have literally saved my lives uh, many, many, many times. Yeah. Uh, you're the first cyclist that said that. So yeah, a lot of people have said their bikes or their Garmin or power tap or something. So I'm glad to hear that. Um, you mentioned one more question. So you mentioned that uh, you had a mentor, you know, that kind of really inspired you and took you all over. What was his name? Joe Moore. Joe Moore. Yeah. Um, if Kind of a, a different perspective, but if you looked out there today and you just thought of someone, um, maybe not even today, maybe past too, but thought of someone that just exemplified living kind of an active and healthy lifestyle, is there anyone that you kind of looked up to over the years? Uh, or tried to emulate in that I, way? I don't know if I tried to emulate them, but uh, my... Uh, manager uh at the shop i worked at in uh in college uh, he's now a manager of a bike shop in santa rosa california uh, his name's uh, phil scheidler uh just a darn cool guy uh he loved you know just to ride anything uh, he taught me the value of uh, commuting to work and how much fun that could be especially the ride home you know the ride to work you're trying to get there as quick as possible 
but the ride home was like the exact opposite. We would, you know, take a 40 mile ride on the way home and it was only five miles, you know, from point A to point B. Uh, but, uh, there's been so many others, um, you know, uh, so many others. Uh, that, that one fellow, though, Phil, uh, just sticks out, and we're still really, really good friends today. Yeah, it, uh, I, you know, when I was in grad school, I moved to Kentucky for grad school, and that's when I first moved here. And I didn't have a car, and I rode my bike. And just commuting every day, I got so much fitter, too. <laughs> like, just merely adding the commute all the time. Well, I appreciate your time. I mean, this is going to be uh, really helpful for people to know how they can get involved too. Are there, we've, you've shared a bunch of resources actually um, for people, but is there any other resources or ways um, that people, or th places people can go to learn more about being active in Kentucky? You know, uh, get connected with whatever local planning organization your community has. Uh, whether it's at the mayor's office, uh, city council, county judge, and tell them what you want. If you want improved biking and walking, uh, if you want new things, uh, if you don't think it's safe, uh, any concern or idea you have, uh, every great thing starts with an idea. Uh, but if you never share it and other people don't know about it, then, you know, it, it's only your idea. Right. And we'll put some links along with the this podcast so that people will know where to go and can get connected cool. so, thanks so much for your time all right thanks thank you me.